In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Everyone here this morning is a leader. Whether you're a private or a general, whether you're the dock worker or the CEO, every man, woman, and child here today is influencing the lives of others for good or for ill. Today, someone is looking at you. They're emulating you. They're following you. And perhaps they're even rejecting some of the things that you do. Who is it that you will lead this week? Well, this morning we're going to begin a new series in the pastoral epistles, Paul's Letters to Timothy. And anyone who's ever been part of a group or gone to work on Monday morning knows that all leaders are not created equal, are they? There are some leaders that are so gifted that following them is a great joy. And there are other leaders that might seem to us as if they couldn't take the dog out for a nightly walk. Now, some experts argue that leaders are born and not made. Nevertheless, Not millions, but billions of dollars are spent every year by the government, by the military, by corporations, and even by churches to train leaders. Just below the surface of the pastoral epistles lie these two questions. What does it take to be a leader? And how does the leader do his or her work? Whether Timothy was a natural-born leader or not, we cannot know. Whether he even wanted the role or it was thrust upon him, it's difficult to say. But we do know that these letters reflect that Timothy was facing the greatest leadership challenge of his life. These two letters are from one of the most influential leaders of all time, from Paul, and they're all about instructing, encouraging, and strengthening Timothy to be the leader that God called him to be at this moment of his life. What we can discover, I believe, in these two short books can be of tremendous value to us in our leadership challenge whether we lead one or two or hundreds. So let me invite you now to take out this blue handout. These are useful because a lot of times I don't reference everything that's in here. So the more complete things are in this little blue handout. Take that out and reach out and grab that Bible that's in front of you, and let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, and let's begin at verse 1. Anybody have the page number? What page number was that on? 991. There's where we are. Great. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, 
to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, who was this Timothy that Paul is writing to? Do we know anything about him? Well, we do know that the, this first letter of Timothy was written about the year 63, 63 AD. And 13 years earlier, Paul had been conducting a missionary campaign in what we now call Central Turkey. That is, about the year 50. And in the year 50, Paul came to the city of Lystra, and he encountered a young man there who was perhaps 14 to 16 years old. Timothy was a third-generation Christian who was then living with his widowed mother. Somehow, Paul saw in Timothy a spark that made him wish to bring Timothy along for the rest of his evangelistic journey. And apparently, the believers in Lystra also saw it in Timothy, for they spoke very well of him and of his faith, and they laid hands upon him, and they spoke prophetic words over him about how God would use his life. This young teenager, then, I think was both courageous and a very serious believer. Now, how do I know that? Well, I know it, first of all, because two years earlier, in 48 AD, when Paul had come to Lystra for the first time, Paul had been stoned and left for dead. Timothy, no doubt, was there, and he saw just what it meant and just what it cost to be a Christian. Further, as a precondition for joining in Paul's evangelistic missionary team, which was going to go, first of all, to Jewish people in every city, Timothy was required to be circumcised. And of course, by this time, Timothy was biologically an adult. Timothy must have been made of some very stern stuff. You can laugh. Well, for the next decade plus... Timothy served Paul, gaining a first-hand knowledge of Paul's labors, of his sufferings, and his teaching. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, we're told that Timothy became like a true child, like a son to Paul. So, by the time of the writing of this letter, Timothy was now almost 30 years old. He was nearly a mature man, as the Jews reckoned it, yet he was still considered quite young in a society that was basically run by the old men. So if you want to contextualize it, you could say it this way. He was a young millennial in the midst of a bunch of old boomers. So, what was Timothy's role, and what had Paul asked him to do? We'll look at chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship 
from God that is by faith. Now this was a very big assignment for any person, let alone a young millennial. Ephesus was the third largest city in the entire world. It was a vitally important center of Christianity. It had a critical role of influence for all the churches in central Turkey, and even beyond that, across the Aegean Sea over to Greece. Additionally, as a port city, what Christianity was and what it was what was taught at Ephesus would be carried all the way around the Mediterranean. So this young man had been asked to set to rights this church, but the success of his mission meant far more than simply the success of the church at Ephesus. The world was watching. Well, if you look at the list of bishops from early days, from the early church, sometimes you'll find Timothy listed as the first bishop of Ephesus. Well, we could say that he was, or we could say that he wasn't a bishop. Certainly, Timothy wasn't a bishop in the same sense that we have bishops today. Here's why he wasn't. We know that elders already existed in Ephesus and were operating many years before the letter of 1 Timothy was written. If you look in Acts chapter 20, you recall that there Paul called together all these elders from Ephesus to speak with them as he was passing through the area. Now today, bishops are chosen by the people from among the elders. The New Testament word for elders is the word presbyters. Yes, our Presbyterian friends, yes, okay? The New Testament word for elder was presbyter. In the Old English translation, that came out as priest, and that's how we get the term priest today for us in the Anglican Church. Today, bishops are elected by the people from the collection of the presbyters or the priests. Then they are confirmed in their election by the people by the whole collection of bishops from the province. Now this collection of bishops is what we call the College of Bishops. This process of confirmation following the election of the people serves to confirm that the, the new bishop will be in what we call the apostolic succession, following the spirit and the teaching of the apostles. So Timothy really wasn't a bishop like we get our bishops today, for he certainly wasn't chosen by the people and he wasn't confirmed by anybody. Yet, Timothy was a bishop in the sense that he was left in Ephesus with an apostolic mission, as an apostolic representative by an apostle to fix some very critical problems. So, however you want to think of him as bishop or not, think that Timothy had some very big shoes to fill. 
Well, what exactly was wrong in Ephesus? What is it that Timothy needed to fix? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. We're told two things in verses 3 and 4. There were certain ones that said that were, one, teaching falsely, and two, they were giving heed to myths and endless genealogies. Now, what does that mean? What was false and what were these myths? We'll look at verses 6 and 7. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Apparently, these false teachers had cast themselves as teachers of the Old Testament Jewish law. And they were handing out these lists of do's and don'ts. If you look over in chapter 4, verse 3, you find out the substance of their assertions. They forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods that Paul says were created by God to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, what Paul is telling Timothy here, and Timothy knows it very well, is this. It's not that God doesn't declare right and wrong. It's not that God doesn't have do's and don'ts. God does lay out these things very clearly. But, you see, lists of do's and don'ts are only the very beginning of Christianity. The declaration of right and wrong is a good thing. Look at chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. I've given it there to you in your handout. Here is a list of things right at the front of this letter that God hates. So why does God have such violent opposition to these things? Because these acts destroy those who do them. They rupture the fabric of society. They plunge the creatures that God loves and cares for into ruin and chaos. Now that's why God says, don't do them. But friends, that's only the first half of the gospel. In our baptism, we pledge that we will turn away from such things. But we also pledge that we will turn toward Christ. You see, if you make the substance of your religion only a turning away and not a turning toward, you will have an empty and powerless and unattractive religion. And that is the kind of religion that these false teachers were peddling. And that's why they had to add a bunch of foolish talk to it to make it palatable. To get people to buy into their dead religion 
They gave it the appearance of life and transcendence with smoke and mirrors and silly myths. But Paul reminds Timothy, in contrast to all that, our religion is something else indeed. We begin with a message that condemns us, that holds us accountable, and we all know that very well. We all know what we were and why we need to turn from that life, but we also know him to whom we are turning. And we know the goal toward which we're pressing. It's there. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. This is the goal of our religion. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Our aim is love that fulfills every requirement of the law that is full of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Love that transforms our hearts. And this love produces purity and a clean conscience and an unhypocritical faith. This then was Timothy's mission. It was a huge task. It was leading people, the people of Ephesus, to set their whole lives and minds and hearts into a right relationship with God's law and God's love. Let me get political for a minute. How many people here are old enough to remember the presidential election of 1992? Do you remember that? Okay. If you're old enough to remember Bill Clinton versus George H.W. Bush, do you remember that election? The pressing question of that election was, does the character of the leader really matter that much? And even if there were questions about the character of Governor Bill, would any of that really affect his ability to be a leader of the nation? If you recall, the outcome of that election was, the majority answer was, no, character doesn't matter. It's solely a personal issue. Well, friends, here we are, 24 years on, and if we are to judge by the media, there is only one issue in this election, and that is, who has the character to be the leader? To be fit for the difficult and complex challenges of leadership, the ones that faced Timothy, above everything else, Paul addresses the character of the leader. Now, Paul might have spoken about education or training or stature or charisma or charm and good looks, but no, Paul addresses the question of character of the leader. What then is required in the character of a leader? 
And Paul instructs Timothy, and by example, he instructs us. The very first thing he says that is required in the character of a leader is humility. Humility. Humility is a many-faceted virtue. In verses 12 through 15 that we read this morning, Paul reminds Timothy that to be fit to be a leader, a leader must truly know himself or herself. That is to say, a leader must know themselves to be a sinner. A sinner forgiven only by grace. And that's what Paul tells Timothy in verse 15. Friends, the Lord and leader of the universe taught us this. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The second aspect of humility is a willingness to be constrained for the sake of others. You remember Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Do I not have these rights? But then he says, Nevertheless, I have not made use of my rights. You see, we may act any way we wish, but the leader humbles himself to live in such a way that he or she is an example to others. In verse 16, Paul reminds Timothy that leaders understand this responsibility of leadership. People are watching and imitating you. The third aspect of humility is found in verse 17 that we read this morning. If you want to be a successful leader, then don't go about seeking credit for yourself. God's leaders want God to receive the glory. Character matters. Humility marks a true leader. Now, the complement to humility is trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. Leaders understand that their work is a trust that has been given to them to be guarded. They have a commission, and there will be an accounting for what they do with it. A true leader is trustworthy. Finally, in verse 19... True leaders strive for a clean or clear conscience. Now these self-proclaimed but false teachers were running all around Ephesus, totally assured of their own correctness and wisdom. But in fact, if they'd only taken a moment to counsel with their own hearts, they would realize how far off base they actually were. But the longer they continued in their pride and self-confidence, the more seared their conscience became. How does one's conscience become seared? 
as Paul says here in verse 19, by neglecting it. By repeatedly ignoring that voice that comes to us inside. Henry, was that really right? Henry, was that word on target? Henry, who said you could make that judgment? Henry, what is it that you have that you did not receive? When we ignore that inner voice, we harden our conscience. We become deaf to it. And Paul says what follows is a shipwreck of our life in Christ. Dear friends, how is your conscience this morning? Others are watching and imitating you. Is your conscience clear? Do you know yourself as nothing more than a sinner forgiven by grace? This morning, have you said yes to the thing that God is continually telling you to say yes to? What is it he wants you to say yes to this morning? Are you standing strong to say no to the thing that God is telling you to say no to? Are you trying to negotiate a deal with God? My prayer for myself and all of us this morning is God may give us the grace to have a clean and clear conscience. Amen.